What is up, Asymmetry? Got some hotness coming your way. After the the Soil Science Part 3 discussion with Ian Hunter, uh, a gentleman from New South Wales, Australia, reached out to us, uh, Gareth Barber, and thank goodness he did. And he had a lot of really insightful information and digestible vernacular around what was discussed in the Soil Science um, discussion with Ian and offered another, I would say, plane of sight or another perspective of how we could look at this system and how we could view it. And um, we sat down with Gareth over a Zoom call. You'll have to bear with us with the audio. Cooper's going to do his very best to make it sound as wonderful as possible, but it is the limitation of, of where we're at at this point in time. But the information in this is, yet again, not something that's going to change your life, but is going to give you something to think about and another alternative, an expansion on our understanding and a furthering of the conversation of this soil science and this portion of bonsai cultivation that has gone so under-addressed for so long, and we are just beginning to explore and further understand how we can improve that containerized environment. Gareth Barber, everybody, enjoy. Gareth, are you there? Yes, I am. Good morning, Ryan. How are you? Uh, I'm doing really well. How are you doing? Really, really good. Hold on. I'll just start the video. So one of the really brilliant things about uh, Mariah Live is that it's connected us to so many people around the world. And um, you've forwarded me your email that you sent us after listening to the the Soil Science Podcast Part 3, which was pretty cringy and also, you know, just uh, sort of the finality of that. Yep. Um, that experiment it was it was very challenging but i was super caught off guard by uh your your email and the depth of knowledge that it seems that you have and your involvement in aquaculture and i just wanted to dig in with you i appreciate you making the time to be a part of it oh no no problem at all yeah i'm, I'm currently on uh on parental leave at the moment um my fiance went back to work uh she's a, a pe high school teacher um, so I've taken 10 weeks off work, um, and, uh, yeah, I've, I've got all the time in the world at the moment. So yeah, yeah, cool. And it's, and you're in the, you're in Wales right now, correct? New South Wales in Australia. Yeah. Ah, New South. <laughs> okay. All right. I got you. I'm with you now. <laughs> yeah. Five hours north of Sydney. Yeah. Cool. 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 Um, and what time is it there? It's 10 a.m. 10 a.m. All right, it's 5 p.m. here. So it's so, a little uh, bit early for a beer at the moment, so I've just got a cup of tea. There you go. There you go. Yeah, it's a little bit late for coffee, so I've just got a beer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so tell me about, before we get started into sort of the deeper scientific dive, because you had a lot to offer the discussion, um, aquaculture. What is aquaculture? I, I have a very, I would say, uh, broad overview of it, but I'm curious. What, what, what is it and what do you do within it? Fish farming, essentially. Um, so the majority of what, we, well, all of what we do, our core business, um, I work for a company called Pure Aquatics in Australia. Um, and the core of our business is recirculating aquaculture. So that's on land, in tanks, uh, with uh, centralised life support systems, um, so filtration, very low water exchange, um, very high amounts of filtration, uh, the heart of that being uh, biological filtration, so harnessing microbes, uh, nitrifying bacteria, and other 
species of bacteria to physically clean the water for you. Uh, remove the biological oxygen demand from the water, uh, remove the nitrogenous waste, so the ammonia, converting it into nitrite and converting it into nitrate, um, and then um, and then removal of, of, of nitrate as well via denitrification is becoming uh, more commonplace as well. Mm-hmm. So, so you're you're doing this to raise fish, correct? Yeah. So farming of salmon, barramundi, uh, Murray cod, um, uh, lobsters, prawns, all this kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And, and there's a lot of, uh, and this is from an ignorant perspective, so forgive me, but just as a, like a broad consumer of information, there's a lot of discussion about um, farm-raised fish uh, potentially having, you know, more bacteria or more problematic issues as a ro- result of being farm-raised. And is that where you're getting into these biological filters and trying to further enhance the system? That's part of it, yeah. The... the- uh, stigmas, I suppose you'd term them as, are uh, very uh, old hat uh, type of thoughts um, that have sort of stuck around since the old days when, you know, stuff was coming out of uh, Southeast Asia and China right. uh, 50 years when they were they were farming carp and using, you know, chicken manure to, to feed uh, the, the carp and things like that. Um, recirculating aquaculture offers a lot more control over the environment um, which is the that's that's the main benefit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, of of recirculating aquaculture. So you have the ability uh, to maintain higher levels of biosecurity um, and uh, control the growth environment to maximise the, the the growing within the growing period. Yeah, you can essentially farm, you could farm a, a tropical species in Antarctica. Wow, is, that's very far out of what you would ever do, right. but aquaculture and the control of the environment allows you to do that. I'll be darned. And and what led you to get into aquaculture? How did this start for you? I it's a funny story actually. Uh, one of my bosses, um, a company that we work that that we both worked for uh, many years ago. I've been doing I've been involved in aquaculture now for fifteen years ever since I was eighteen years old. Um, I was just breeding ornamental fish like Siamese fighting fish and mm-hmm. angel like that at home and I was working in the local supermarket just stacking some shelves and talking to uh talking to the guy I was working with there and he happened to be walking past and heard me talking about it and said oh okay well you know we do we do aquaculture here in the same town that I was um that I was working in uh why don't you come up and have a talk to us and the next day I had a job so I've been that day ever since. I just kind of fell into it, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's been a roller coaster, definitely. But um, we're kicking some real goals, and and uh, aquaculture, especially in Australia, but around the world, is is skyrocketing. It's it's uh, maintained a very very steady increase in growth um, over the past twenty years, and for the first time last year or the year before. Aquaculture produced fish actually outstripped wild caught. Oh, so, wow. Okay, making the change. There's basically not enough fish in the ocean to feed the world population. Yes. Uh, yeah, so. Wow, wow, that's so interesting. So they, that was a big milestone for, for aquaculture yeah, around the world. Finally crossed, finally crossed the threshold where, where wild caught yes. was not the predominant. Wow, that's so fascinating. And, and I mean, is, is all of aquaculture 
built around uh, raising fish as a food source, or is there a a you know component of aquaculture that is w- would be different than than raising it as a, a source of nutrition? Um, <clears throat> I would say predominantly uh, it's it's for a source of protein. Mm-hmm. There are forms. Uh, sorry. There are areas of aquaculture that utilize the waste streams um, as well as uh, the, the, the effluents to either grow, um, grow secondary crops. So, for instance, uh, there is a company in, uh, in New South Wales on the south coast that uses effluent from aquaculture farms to grow algae, um, macroalgae to be, to be specific. Um, seaweeds and things like that for not only nutrition but also pharmaceutical. Mm-hmm. Um, pharmaceutical more goes into the production of algae as well. Um, there's waste streams from aquaculture from the processing that they then process for fish hydrosolate, which we use as fertilizer. Yeah. So, um, or hydrolysate. Um, so the hydrolysate that is produced predominantly in Australia is from the tuna farming industry. Mm. So they grab that, they grab those fish frames and the the the, the entrails and all the waste that's left over um, from kingfish and tuna farming and all sorts of other aquaculture and, and wild caught farming, um, and they uh, enzymatically digest it in a, in a cold cold composting process essentially and then and then they filter out the crowd so that's what you got wow wow and so when when they are doing that i know like i've heard of systems i think they're called called aquaponic systems where they're using the the nutrient rich byproduct in the water and using that as a fertilizer source for plants and then the plants filter the water. I mean, I think it's a very utopic concept and I, I'm sure there are people out there that are probably like, how dare you call it utopic? It's, it's real, but I've heard of aquaponics and, and, um, you know, have always recognized that there is a lot of processes that happen inside of this, uh, hydro environment that create interesting relationships and, kelp as such a magical substance in the horticultural world would be a testament to that as well as some of the seaweeds and all of the extracts that come from those it's it's really fascinating yeah aquaponics was kind of uh witch doctor stuff um 10 years ago or so uh and then it just kind of took off uh it's gone through various phases um commercial aquaponics these days uh, it, it started as as meshing uh, plant growth with fish growth, so essentially replacing hydroponic nutrient with the nutrients coming out of the fish. Mm-hmm. And then some people really dug in um, into the into the science and nutrient requirements of of the plants and things like that to uh, to really dial in the process. And then a couple of years ago, it was found that hold on a sec, we're, we're growing plants that need a very low pH of 66.5 for, for you know maximum nutrient uptake, but our fish need a pH of above 7, preferably 7.5 or higher, um, to maintain their internal blood pH. Um, and, and, and pH is very important also for nitrification or the nitrification that we drive within our um, within our aquaculture systems in our biofilters, which is mostly an autotrophic, um, an autotrophic process that uses inorganic carbon, 
rather than organic carbon. Mm -hmm. uh, so we people just started to decouple them. So they they took they run the fish as 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 their own pH and temperature, and then they take the waste stream, they remineralize it and digest it further and feed it into their aquaponic systems, um, essentially operating it as a hydroponic system. Um, and the benefits were that the fish grew better, uh, less disease and were less stressed. And the plants grew better because not only did they have more nutrient, but their, their pH was more dialed in. Right. So they were actually able to increase their yields by up to 500% no, by system by releasing more nutrient by digesting that nutrient further and dialing in the environmental factor so that, that's where uh, that's where you know i was about the control of the environment and 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 uh you know optimizing the growth conditions um that's that's sort of where we're at at the moment and we're still finding out more and more each day and and um you know the more i learn and the more i go along the more i realize the less i know <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. it's and and it's kind of it's weird that because my my uh you know my my baby is is probiotic bacteria and biological remediation of these systems and, and things like that and, and we've actually just developed a couple of, of bacterial products a a fine bacteria for culturing biofilters and also a probiotic as well um, and it's strange how it crosses over into horticulture, into compost tea, and into beekeeping that I also do a lot of, and um, you know all this kind of stuff. And it's just, yeah, it's it's moving along at a rapid pace. Yeah, it's really. What was the name of the bacteria? It cut out right as you said the bacteria that you had just developed or released. That we. What we did is we isolated um, from various sources, both from the environment um, and some commercial um, sources as well. We isolated some nitrifying bacterial strains, so autotrophic nitrifying bacteria, uh, and that was for starting up biological filters for our, for our recirculating systems, and also probiotic bacteria. So that was bacteria that produced uh, antimicrobial and antibiotic substances. It's um, bacteria, heterotrophic bacteria predominantly, um, that uh, that degrade starches and sugars and cellulose and produce a wide range of enzymes for different enzymatic processes within systems. Because we can have it in pond systems as well as in recirculating systems, and because they're for lack of a better description, closed systems or, or systems that have a high amount of nutrient input that don't have a, a high amount of nutrient export, we need to be able to remediate those in situ. Yeah. Um, so isolated some denitrifying bacteria as well. Uh, so what, what, does it, what does it mean to denitrify? It means to take nitrate, which is the most oxidized form of nitrogen. So we start off with ammonia, it nitrifies it, uh, we nitrify it into nitrite and then nitrify that into nitrate. It's That's the most usable form of, of, of nitrogen for plants. Um, and it's the most oxidized form that we can get to. Now, it's not harmful to fish unless it gets into, you know, concentrations of over 300 to 500 parts per million in some cases. Um, some species tolerate less. Um, but what we what we want to do is we want to get rid of that. So uh, 
bacteria that denitrify nitrate is they take that nitrate, they use the, the O in the O3. So NO3 is the, is the, is the chemical form of uh, chemical symbol for nitrate. They take the oxygen from that nitrogen um, compound. And they use that as their oxygen source and they break it off and through different enzymatic and digestion processes from nitric acid to nitrous oxide and then into nitrogen gas, they, they, they desimilate it and the nitrogen gas just gases off to the atmosphere. Wow, wow. Okay, so, yeah. so when plants, or excuse me, when fish uh, create excrement, you have an ammonium form of nitrogen at that point in time, which is NH3 or NH4? And it depends on the pH. Okay, okay, interesting. So you get the production of ammonia and ammonium. Yeah, okay. and, and, the, the, and the concentration and ratio of those two forms of ammonia is directly dependent on the pH. Um, they predominantly excreted from their gills. A small amount is excreted via their urine. Okay, so it and, comes from their gills. Yep, oh. they excrete the ammonia gills yeah and and then the the majority of it and then a portion of that then comes from their um, solid excrement which then breaks down over time and releases more ammonia wow and so then you have to have something in the system to oxidize the nitrogen source and turn it first into no2 which is nitrite and then eventually into no3 which is nitrate and then you which have is less harmful Okay, which is less harmful because it's loaded with all of these oxygen, uh, you know, molecules around it. Okay, and then you have to have an enzyme because still, even though it's less harmful, it can build up into toxic quantities. You have a bacteria that is breaking this down and enzymatic reactions that continue to decompose the nitrate into nitrogen gas, which eventually just rises to the surface and dissipates. Yeah, gas is off. Yeah. Wow, so wow, 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 wow. Okay. And gas, yeah, so nitrogen gas. And so the only other way to get rid of the nitrate is to either grow something that's going to consume it, like algae, mm -hmm. or water changes diluted. Yeah. And then in the algae, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, this is kind of the big, big uh, hazard of factory fertilize farm fertilization and fertilizers as well as soaps getting into the the natural water sources you get a nitrogen boom in terms of nitrates being present which causes an algae bloom that exhausts the oxygen in the water and this is when you get massive uh aquatic life die off correct yeah and, and the interesting thing about algae is um the, the first thing is you know, you've seen the, the the horror videos of the, the reef in california or florida or whatever those huge mats thick mats of algae that just drowned out the the the, the coral um, so that's you know a physical suffocation of animals coral and fish is is one thing um and <clears throat> the interesting thing about algae is in um, extensive farming, so what we what we term extensive, essentially outdoors in ponds where they grow fish and prawns or shrimp, as you guys call them in the US, um, they want to grow algae because as algae photosynthesizes, it produces oxygen, just like plants do. So that increases the dissolved oxygen in the water for the fish to um, for the fish to respire, and it also takes up those nitrogen compounds, ammonia, nitrite, nitrate. It, it helps to remediate the water. The problem comes when the sun goes down and that algae starts to respire. Yeah. 
yeah. it starts to use the oxygen and produce CO2. Um, so it sucks the oxygen out of the water. It also produces CO2, which is not only a sedative, but it drops the pH through the formation of carbonic acid. So we can get pH swings of anywhere between, you know, like five and 10 within the course of 24 hours within a pond environment if it's not regulated. Wow. Properly. Wow. That's so, crazy. All of these things are going on, right? So it's, it's just, and when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it, it's everything within an aquatic system or a, even a soil system or even our internal system is, uh, as humans, not so much to that extent, but to a certain extent is uh, driven by microbes. Yeah. So you're, you're farming you're farming microbes. They keep the water, the water keeps the fish. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Not much with plants, but, you know, healthier the, the, the soil environment, the, the better the plants can grow. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's where you're working on the, the, the probiotic bacteria and, and things of that nature to be able to more, more or less allow the system to moderate itself a little bit more as opposed to changing out the water and filtering it constantly or at higher quantities and levels. Exactly. Cause we don't want to use water. Water is expensive. It's expensive to pump. Um, our continent is, uh, in drought, I don't know, 170% of the time, it seems. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, uh, we, you know, we want to we preserve water, um, not only for uh, the, the labour and the cost it takes to exchange it and filter it, um, but also because we have less control over the environment as we flush with, with water from an outside source. Mm-hmm. It takes more to heat it up, takes more to maintain those water chemistry conditions that we're aiming for. Um, and discharging it with EPA regulations and environmental regulations in Australia especially is, for lack of a better term, a massive pain in the ass. Yeah, right. So, you know, we want to minimise that. We want to reduce the amount of water that we're using and discharging because we're, as, as agriculturalists and aquarists and, and people that, you know, um, want to preserve the environment, we don't want to impact our environment negatively. Um, we want to do, you know, it's the more impact we have on the environment, the harder it's going to become for us to produce these animals and the harder it's going to be to get quality water because the more crap we put the water, the more crap we pump out of it to put back into the farm. So, you know, we want to, we want to preserve our natural environment and that's where these bacteria and, and, you know, when we isolate these bacteria, we might isolate a bacillus subtilis. The matches for Bacillus subtilis in a 99.9 percentile match from a blast that we have from like a DNA um, sequencing that we do, we might have 3,000, 4,000 hits in the 99.9 percentile for Bacillus subtilis alone. And then 99.8, 99.7, and as we go down, there are literally like... It can be the difference of one gene that changes one enzymatic process that means that one bacillus subtilis will will perform completely different to another. Wow. Wow. That almost uh, 
that almost creates an impossibility of sorts if it's so incredibly specific to that degree. Yeah. The, the only thing we can do is uh, look at what is happening in the environment and try and isolate uh, the bacteria that are producing the that are producing the processes that we want yeah. in in that environment, as well as you know different uh, microbial and and uh, microbial libraries around the world have have these particular species and they've mapped their genomes, they've mapped their enzymatic processes, and they can tell you what they will do. Whether they've got a, 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 a nitrite oxidase uh, enzyme or process or gene or whatever it might be. Um, you know, and so we have a, a, we have a probiotic mix that consists of seven different strains and, you know, we can add those strains. They're very efficient at what they do. Two weeks after or three weeks after we add them, um, I can say unequivocally that they would not be the same microbes that we had at the start because of environmental impact within the system and inputs within the system. Um, you know, putting in different microbes into the system that, that may outcompete those, as well as the fact that bacteria mutate. They mutate, they exchange genes with each other, they become less and less efficient at what they originally designed to do. And so just like a horticulture application, we want to ensure that we're constantly adding microbes and uh, humus and different composts and things like that to the system to ensure that we keep a diversity of good microbes within the system uh, to ensure that we don't end up with single species, that we don't end up with, you know, something that's going to create negative effects within our, within our environment, whether it's a pot, whether it's soil out in, out on pasture, whether it's anything. So it's very important for, for regular addition, as well as then nurturing that, uh, those those additions to ensure that they operate to the best of their ability. So that's really interesting. I've never heard, you know, as much as Ian and I talked over the course of, of three podcasts and engaged in those experiments, there was never a discussion of the fact that bacteria were going to mutate or, and I'm curious, do, do, do fungi also mutate? Do you know? I don't know. Um, my gut feel would be as a process of evolution and, you know, environmental impacts on any organism that they would change over the course of time. Whether they're as affected as, say, a heterotrophic bacteria, because heterotrophs, um, and we, we are heterotrophs, um, but we're a more complex heterotroph. What is a heterotroph, uh, just, just so that we're clear? Consumption of organic carbon. So food and vegetables and meat and whatever, or organic carbon in the source of when we're talking about heterotrophic bacteria, we're talking about sugars, we're talking about alcohols, we're talking about all these different things. Like when we're brewing compost tea, we have molasses, yeah, as a sugar source, it's sure. a carbohydrate. So that's that's feeding, and it's got lots of other stuff in it, which makes molasses really great um, because it's a very complex food source, offers a lot of stuff. Um, the downfall of molasses obviously being that it feeds everything. Mm -hmm. So we've got, you know, undesirables that can occur if we don't provide the right environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and bacteria, disease causing bacteria. So that's why we have to, 
that's why we want to keep it aerated. We want to keep it, you know, nice and healthy and oxygenated when we're doing that. Um, <coughs> so um, heterotrophic bacteria will reproduce every 15 to 30 minutes, splitting yeah. and pulling. So exponential growth rates after 24 hours, which is why we have to be so careful because if you add more organic carbon, the consumption of oxygen goes up um, and then you get a crash. I've had a couple of crashes with compost tea and I can tell you right now, you do not want to be anywhere near that stuff. When it crashes, it smells putrid. Mm. It's disgusting. It's, it, it, it'll make you vomit. It's, yeah, it's bad stuff. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I had to, and I think like that's the challenge with the whole bonsai container, at least like on a broad brush stroke from the outside looking in and trying to make sense of, of our experiences with compost tea. Cause, cause I think everything was added. Right. But, but in the, in, in the practice of bonsai, we're using the shallow ceramic, you know, most of the time ceramic vessel, which now you're reducing the impact of gravity and that's what drives the, 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 the reduced impact of gravity moving water out of that system is what drives the necessity for the granular substrate that we utilize. Because if you didn't use that, you would have no oxygen and all water. You would be in a completely anaerobic environment and have no hope of plant growth, right? And so, so all of a sudden, you know, when we applied uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly with the compost tea, which you naturally have all of those in, in, in when you talk about like a, uh, a really well-rounded compost, you're going to have the good and the bad. Um, but we have put it into a scenario where we did have, um, because I think even in the best case scenario once, and especially where we saw the damage was in highly um refined root systems where they had really compressed the soil they had uh created a very fine dense mass of roots which therefore you know gives us i think that capacity to really refine the canopy of the tree and all of the reasons that that you know works that's a that's a very blunt instrument to explain why a refined root system gives gives you the capacity to refine a tree but if we just say they're mere reflections of each other it's like the broadest explanation but those were the trees that were impacted the, the worst because naturally there's a lower quantity of oxygen once the roots have become really fine and occupied those oxygen spaces that would exist in the granular soil, say when you just freshly repot a tree or put it into a bonsai container in that first year or two. And man, it was, it, it, it was um, interesting, to say the least, to watch each tree behave in the different manners in which it behaved. You've got, so you've got an environment there where you've got the root system that is existing in an environment where it's sort of got enough oxygen to, to get into its groove and it's, it's plugging along. It's fine. You know, it's, it will tell you slowly if you add too much organic matter through fertilizer, because you, you use organic fertilizer. Yep. So um, it will, it will tell you when it's, you know, not doing well, slowly, you'll see less water penetrating the surface of the pot into the soil, it's draining slower and stuff like that. It's fine at that point. Changes happen relatively slowly and you can pick up that and take action if you need to. Mm -hmm. Compost tea, you have, you know, bacterial levels of CFU concentrations of, one by 10 to the eighth and higher. You have all this organic matter in the soil that's built up over 
one, two, three, five years in some cases with some of these older trees, more refined trees, and you add a huge amount of bacteria that have been feeding on organic carbon in the compost seed that then get into the pot and they go, whoa, look at all this food. <laughs> and they just, because you've got such a, you know, for lack of a better description, a buildup of crud over the years from the breakdown of your Akadama and the breakdown of, of organic fertilizers, the, the accumulation of mold and things like that from tree, from leaves falling off the tree, dust out of the atmosphere on the surface of the soil working its way through organics that come in on your water because you know you will have organic coming through with your water dissolved that will build up and attract themselves to the surface of those particles and all of a sudden you've got orders of magnitude higher amounts of bacteria that you've added to this pot and <laughs> there goes your oxygen yeah because yeah. they're feeding on the organic carbon that is inherently there that is built up over that time that's why you wouldn't notice as much of a difference in a, as you said, a newer tree with less clogged, quote unquote, substrate yep. and, and less ramified root system with more room and more ability to exchange oxygen. And that's why I say, you know, you're adding huge amounts of seaweed and stuff like that. Seaweed is a fantastic bacterial food at, what did I say, 0.5%? Mm -hmm. um, we were able to grow in a 24-hour space um, in our bench tests um, bacteria from 1 by 10 to the 5th as a seed culture to 1 by 10 to the 11th in 24 hours, which is a lot. <laughs> so, and that's what we use now to, um, to bloom out our bacteria and as at, well is a portion of blooming out our bacteria and um, and and uh, feeding our bacteria in the culturing stage of both our probiotics and our nitrifying bacteria um, because it adds such a diverse range of food source as well as it physically fuels growth in heterotrophic bacteria so well and it reduces the growth of um, undesirable bacteria unlike molasses, which feeds, as I said, everything. So, so what you've done is you've, you've, you may as well have, you, you have achieved the same thing as mixing up a high level of molasses in water and pouring it onto the tree because you're, you've got bacteria in the soil, but you've gone the other way and adding a heap of bacteria to that would eat the organic carbon and consume all the oxygen in the system. It's the same thing as adding a, a huge organic carbon source to it. You could have got around that by watering, or you could have regulated that some to some degree by watering with chlorinated water, because chlorine will kill bacteria, yeah. But it's not good for our plants because it kills all the microbial activity within the within the system as well. I hate chlorinated water. I've noticed since moving in, we just moved into our first home in the past uh, four months. We've been here for four months. And I have a rainwater tank now the difference in my trees in just four months by watering with rainwater is phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. The pH, the purity of the water, the lack of dissolved ions and chlorine and stuff like that in the water. It's, it's mind blowing how much of a difference it's made. So the, 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 the application of, I'm, and I'm just trying to get to the, I'm just trying to understand the application of the compost tea basically just dumped a heap, 
heap of bacteria onto it. And not all bacteria are bad, uh, but there's a there's a balance of fungi and bacteria that we're trying to strike in the cultivation of plants specifically. And if you have too many bacteria, obviously that inhibits the plants. And then there's food sources that favor bacterial growth versus uh, fungal growth. Um, so by applying that big compost extract, which had a little bit of everything, right, we, we, we added a lot of bacteria to a system that had a lot of food sources for the bacteria is what you're saying from all of the accumulated matter. Yeah. So it's just like we yeah, added molasses and, and seaweed extract or kelp extract um, to, the, to the compost tea to feed the microbes. You've then taken all those microbes and a different form of organic carbon in broken down organics and stuff that you've had inside the pot. You've then added bacteria to that and they've gone party time. Yep. I, I don't they're like they're like teenagers at their first kegger. They just, you know, <laughs> I'm eating, I'm just eating. Yeah. And they just follow the and as I said, you know, production every 15 to 30 minutes, you've added a huge amount of bacteria to begin with. And then you've got all this food and they've just gone party time. They're, they're drinking, they're taking shots, they're ripping their clothes off. They don't care who or what's going on. They're just going on hell for leather. And, you know, so what got an environment on the knife edge. Yeah. And then it. Yeah. And it's makes so much sense. So then so then if the if the application of fish hydrolysates and kelp was not the solution you know like we did the compost extract uh and that that that, you know that we tipped the knife edge with that and 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 then we were feeding with something that that really caused that to flourish i mean we're also looking to a degree at you know and this comes back to the ammonium uh ammonia nitrite nitrate in terms of nitrogen sources that are best for the balance of microbial activity in the containerized environment and considering nitrogen resources for the plant, you know, to to a degree, it seemed like avoiding ammonium as a nitrogen source for a plant is 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 a better idea, or at least that is what I, I think I understood as part of that conversation. I'm curious what you think about that, and then how I sh- I could behave or should behave, having tipped the bacterial pop- population to really get back to a little bit more balanced system. Well, the nitrate is already oxidized. So the amount of bacteria that you need in comparison to nitrifying ammonia first into a more usable and more comfortable form of nitrate for the plant, uh, nitrogen for the plant, which is nitrate, is far less if you start with nitrate versus if you add ammonia. Now... You've seen when people, when farmers add um, you know, urea or they add um, ammonium sulfate to their soil, they've also got to add agricultural lime or calcium carbonate. That's because they need to increase the pH and the carbonate or alkalinity of their soil so that nitrifying bacteria, because nitrifying bacteria, part of their metabolism is they need alkalinity. It's like... Our blood needs iron to carry oxygen. They need alkalinity or carbonates to oxidize the ammonia to transfer it into nitrate. 
they don't have that, you don't get the conversion of the ammonia into a more usable form of nitrate and you don't get the most bang for your buck out of your fertilizer. <clears throat> what also happens is the acidity of the soil drops and then nothing grows because if you've got no alkalinity, you, your, your, um, your soil is very acidic, you're not gonna have the diversity of microbes in your soil. Um, it's all about that balance I was talking about, how I, uh, you, you spoke in one of those podcasts about how you had a drop in pH within the soil structure. It's physically because you're not putting in any carbonates and you're constantly feeding the microbial action within, within the root zone and within the pot that is dropping that pH constantly. Even though your water is staying the same, the, uh, the alkalinity is being um, digested and the, the pH is slowly dropping within the system. And, and, and that you can, you can get around that by using different, um, using different substrate mediums. Um, stuff that you know does have a, a lime or, or calcium carbonate portion to it. Uh, the problem being that you don't want it to get too alkaline because then the nutrients become unavailable. Yeah, yeah, and when, I mean, I guess like when I open a bag of say like bio gold fertilizer, I don't know if you have any experience with bio gold as a as a Japanese fertilizer. No, I mean you open the bag and you immediately get that big whiff of uh, of ammonia smell, right? And, and, uh, and I think like when, when Ian and I were looking at all of the sort of the ways that we had handled fertilization, you know, that was one thing that he commented on. And, and I guess my question would be, you know, how do you, what nitrogen source or what could we apply to the soil that would be a form of nitrogen in the form of nitrate for, first and <clears throat> foremost in an organic form, uh, ideally? Worm castings. Worm castings. I mentioned in Worms have this fantastic ability to take really, really terrible soil and turn it into gold. Like um, Darwin said, the top six inches of soil on the entire face of the planet is relied, is put there and because of earthworms. It's they aerate the soil, they take in bad stuff, and they crap out good stuff. The 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 metabolic change of the waste, and to be to be totally clear here, predominantly they're feeding on the bacteria and fungi within their system, not the waste product itself. Interesting. There is cold composting and slowly composting the stuff. So say in a worm farm. I've just actually restarted my worm farm after after about six months. I lost all my worms during last winter. Um, so it's a very cold composting. Um, it's not it's not a it's not a thermal composting like like normal composting would be. The waste is slowly breaking down. As it breaks down, they're feeding on the yeasts and the fungi and the bacteria and all that kind of thing that's growing on that food. And they're putting out very, um, very stable humus, essentially. It's, it's almost completely broken down organic matter. And like I've got worm castings in my pots from two or three years ago because I've been very slack and life got in the way. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of my plants, 
and 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 full disclosure, a lot of my plants I like to term as in training still. Sure. Um, no finished trees at all. Um, I've been practicing bonsai on and off for for maybe uh, since I was about thirteen or fifteen, um, and I don't think I've ever had a finished tree. So I like the horticulture side of it a lot. Um, I tend to adopt a lot of new hobbies and get distracted. So very cool. I, respe- um, I, I respect that. I respect that, and good and <laughs> thank goodness you have because that's what gave rise to this conversation, which I was yeah. I was excited to have. But ba- so basically, when you reached out to me. You know, like, and and I think this this is where I've been trying to expand my knowledge because I understand, um, even if I don't understand, even if somebody doesn't understand why ammonium that that form of nitrogen is bad, although you've explained it and it makes a lot of sense because we get to a more and more complex oxidized form of nitrogen. This is much less toxic. It also demands uh, uh, more desirable bacteria be present to break it down. It's a food source for higher quality bacteria. I'm a assuming it's a food source for higher quality fungi as well to some degree or another somewhere in there it probably works out like that and you're saying to get to the highest quality of nitrogen this is what you reached out to me and told me is hey worm castings like this is the real deal and you also went farther because i think one of the big conversations inside of a higher quality of nitrogen is a calcium source that does allow you to buffer some of these ph changes but also creates available calcium which is such a paramount thing that isn't discussed in soil science, especially inside of bonsai or the containerized environment, but you're saying, hey, via what you provide those worms as a food source, they will break down calcium into a byproduct that is usable forms for the soil, buffer the pH, you get the the oxidized nitrogen. And this is where you're making a real case that worm castings are potentially the best resource to nutrition our trees in a containerized environment. They're microbially rich. They have everything that you put into a worm farm is digested. So that the, the more diversity and the higher quality of product you put into your worm farm, the better the quality of castings coming out. Mm-hmm. So say, and, and obviously you don't want it to go acidic because it is a soil environment as well and you are trying to look after your worms. So you can put powdered zeolite over the top to absorb any ammonia that does get released. And that zeolite will act as grit and will go through the worms. And that zeolite, as it's broken down, which it will break down eventually, will become some sort of rock dust or those minerals maintained in that aluminosilicate matrix will break down and become, you know, part of the soil structure. Um, a very important part of, of worm farm maintenance is the application of uh, calcium carbonate or agricultural lime or dolomite, which is calcium magnesium carbonate. Um, again, adding you know, not only calcium and carbonates, but also biologically available magnesium when it's yeah. eaten as well. Very important for our plants as well. And it's incredibly stable. Um, so, and what we can do is uh, the next step that a lot of these vermiculturists uh, that farm worms and produce high amounts of worm castings will do is they will manipulate the food sources they put in to a degree they will pre-compost all of their foodstuffs and feed the worms the compost rather than feeding them the food itself. The digestion happens a lot faster, so the production of their worm castings is a lot faster. Now, they're eating a better quality of microbe 
So they're, you know, producing, like I said, keep the microbes, the microbes keep the water or the soil, and the soil keeps all the water, keeps the fish, or the soil keeps the plants, sure. essentially. Um, this is what biodynamic farming is all about and, and why um, why a lot of people are going back to it. You know, I, I, <laughs> I've said many times in the past, what, what did people call organic food 50 years ago? And people are just like, what did they call it? They, said, they called it food. Yeah, right, 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 right. Strong point. <laughs> there, was, there was no concept of organic or, or organic food. It was just food because that's the way everyone did it. They knew what they were doing. Yeah. Right. Was somehow lost in in large large scale agriculture. This this concept of hey, we've actually got to look after the shit that we're putting the plants in so it grows good. Yeah. Uh, we can't just dump a so, bunch of urea on it and have it work out. Oh, look, that's what they do. And then they add, you know, they add superphosphate and they add different things to it. And, and you know, the plants grow, but they've got bugger all nutritional quality to them. Yeah. And just, you know, the plants will, will take up. There's been studies on, on agricultural land where plants will actually take up something like 150% or, or 150 times the amount of phosphate that they actually need to grow and just store it in their cell structure just because it's there. And is that damaging? Is that damaging to them? I mean, this is something we were talking with yeah. da- David DeGroote, who's a very, I think, a very well-versed bonsai practitioner in the Pacific Northwest. And he said, hey, I'm not, I'm not so worried about, I mean, potassium is, is, is an issue. There's a, a, an abundantly high qu- quantity of potassium just in general existence in agriculture in North America and even in Japan. But, but uh, he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about phosphorus, man. There's too much phosphorus. And he's going towards cottonseed meal as a, as a, you know, nutrient resource to try and duplicate the, the, the rapeseed meal that they used in Japan in bonsai. And in, in, in any way you go about it, when you look at rapeseed or you look at cottonseed, you know, and when, when I look at, 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 um, sort of the solution provided that that Ian really leaned on uh, post compost extract application, not a solution, but to work in tandem. He's saying, okay, let's use um, you know fish hydrolysates and let's use kelp, and both of those are are you know have a nitrogen presence, but uh, have a, a much lower, if if any, phosphorus or potassium in them, um, sort of as part of that holistic system to try and increase and improve the what sounds like the oxidation of the nitrogen resources to be able to build the more preferable bacteria and fungal content and and it sounds to me like you're saying hey let's take it even a step further let's compost uh choice foods and then let's put them through um, a worm colony and allow the worms to further digest them to make the calcium available to to uh, get that uh, nitrification of of the nitrogen source into a nitrate form and to uh, even potentially if you're choosing to add magnesium uh, or the magnesium based calcium supplement that you add magnesium as well and you have a much greater control of a much more usable and highly digested meaning it's got more microbial action and is more fit for microbial action and it's and it's, it's a lot more biologically available to the plant itself mm. Mm. if you wanted to manipulate the the level of bacteria and fungi in the worm castings that you had the foodstuffs that you put into it. Say you had two compost piles. One was thermally composted 
food scraps, manures, stuff like that, manipulating your carbon to nitrogen ratio. There's plenty of different options, horse manure, cow manure, sheep manure, um, all of, you know, food scraps, straw, everything like that. And then you had a fungally dominated compost where essentially fall leaves or, or, or autumn leaves, letting them break down slowly. And you fed a higher portion of that fungally dominated compost compared to the bacterially dominated compost into the worm farm to change the microbial herd within the worm farm to then put that onto your plants to proliferate the amount of fungi within the pot itself by adding it via the worm castings. That, along with fish hydrolysate and kelp, is what I believe to be probably the most diverse and effective feeding regime that we could possibly put together for any plant. Now, why, why at this point, because you had, you had made a statement earlier um, about, you know, the fish hydrolysate being a real, um, being a real fuel source for bacteria to just party. Um, and it sounds like what you're saying is fish hydrolysates and kelp are going to be a, a real manner in which both fungi and bacteria can party. Is that what I'm hearing? The kelp um, is more of a bacterial food. Um, the fish hydrolysate is not as great at growing bacteria. In fact, it favors itself more to fungi. Gotcha. Okay. Um, the fish hydrolysate adds a lot of amino acids, which are essentially the building blocks of proteins and, and nitrogen. You can add those in a, adding them as fish hydrolysate adds them in a form that is directly available as a nitrogen source to the plant. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I mean, I've seen this, I've seen this happen, you know, and in the, in, in the, the, the discussion with Ian got so chopped up just, um, just because the conversation, you know, he and I both got fired up and, and we, we ended on great terms and it was, it became a very diplomatic discussion, but it, it wasn't productive to leave those, uh, you know, the more heated components of the conversation in there, but we also lost what was discussed that, that transitioned us through that conversation. But, um, you know, one thing that I had noticed was just how, um, how much the trees have responded to the fish hydrolysates and, and what you're saying really makes sense, which is basically that is really readily available to them. But, you know, one of the other discussions that was being had at that time with Ian is, but it still seems like there needs to be a solid organic uh, nutrition source that's placed on the surface of the soil. And, and it sounds like from what you're telling me, you believe that potentially dry worm castings might be the best resource for that. Um, to potentially provide provide that that resource, would you prefer dry dry worm castings, or would you take uh, worm tea that you're running through your worm farm? Which one, and how would you use those differently? Um, <clears throat> I used to um, I used to pour water through my worm farm and collect the water out of it and use that as a liquid fertilizer on my plants, and they responded brilliantly. Um, <clears throat> if we're talking about worm castings as an organic fertilizer, which, you know, this, we can go so deep with this, um, as not only as a vector for nutrition, but also as a stimulant for producing fine root mass and ramified roots. 
Um, the amount that you need to use is very small. If you're using it as a fertilizer, a fine dusting on the top of, of worm castings and watering them in um, and allowing the microbial activity to access to them, you're adding humus or humic acids, you're adding fulvic acids, which acts as a CEC sites and, and, and nutrient binding sites. Um, the roots will physically penetrate the worm casting as well. And because it's such a stable form of humus, it doesn't really break down. Um, like those pictures that I sent to Eve that I believe she forwarded on to. Yeah, I got them. Those, I've been I've been looking at them as we've been talking. The large the large you know portions of those they were that was unsifted worm castings and and arguably probably was composted matter from the from the worm farm with a portion of worm castings in it, but was microbially broken down. That stuff there is out of a pot that that was added to, I think, three years ago. I'll be darned. That's crazy. Very, very stable. Now, you know, as a, as a potting medium, could you add it at potting? Yes. I've added it up to 50%. Do you need to add it at that rate? No. 10 to 15% seems to be the sweet spot as an amendment, right? Going a step further, after all of our manipulation of fungi and bacterial dominated worm castings and, and different foodstuffs that we're putting into it that's been pre-composted. Could you add pumice into the worm farm to aerate the worm farm and produce a really nice environment for the worms? And then after you sift that pumice out, use that pumice as a microbially activated humus rich pumice as a very small portion in your potting medium to inoculate your new soil medium when you're repotting. So this is like this was like when Yeah, I mean this is like when Ian was saying, "Hey, listen, we'll we'll take mushrooms and we'll inoculate pumice with the mushrooms." Uh, and, and that fungal spread of the hyphae then will be inside of the pumice and we'll use that in the repotting process to immediately inoculate with beneficial fungi in the containerized environment. And you're basically proposing. So it's I mean, the, 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 the theories and the strategies are, are, are in line uh, in terms of it's just a different now again, a different mechanism that's even more highly broken down, more uh, readily available in a more favorable form from what you're proposing with the worm castings. And, and, and what I'm trying to understand, I guess, is, is do you, because you made a comment, I've just been reading your email and I'm going to, I'm going to read this email, the initial one that you sent in response. Do you mind if I read it? Oh, yeah, okay. go for it. All right. So I was saying, uh, hi, Ryan, I was listening to part three of the Soil Science podcast and listening to the comment, I thought I would offer up my experiences. I've been using compost tea and nutrient teas for about 10, 10 years now with great success. The number one thing I came up with that lacked in your application was hum uh, humus. You don't have a great deal of organic matter in the soil to harbor the higher forms of microorganisms and provide a vector for organic release of nutrient. I've always uh, worked with castings as the backbone for my organic fertilizer and compost tea. Easiest application, using water leached through a worm farm bed or casting 
dissolved in water and watered into the soil. Putting worm casting on top of the soil and watering is also very effective. The worm castings, if blended well, will develop a, a microbial colony specific to your area, including nematodes and protozoas. You also add calcium carbonate, agricultural lime, in small amounts to balance the pH in the worm castings. This calcium is then broken down by the worms and microbial colonies in the worm farm to offer biologically available calcium. The carbonates are used in nitrification, which brings me to another point. The nitrification process is likely the leading cause to your lower pH issues without addition of carbonates to the soil due to it being uh, predominantly inorganic. Too much and the soil pH goes up, so careful addition through worm castings is much safer. You can then apply worm castings regularly to the soil surface to add humus, organic matter, and nutrients all in one application. I mean, so, and there's more, and I'll go back into more, but I feel like getting through that first chunk is really where we've focused a lot of our, a lot of our conversation thus far. And essentially what you're saying is you can apply other things, but passing it through the worm farm makes it far safer and more predictable. Is that what I'm understanding? Yep, because it, it, it breaks everything down. It, it cold composts everything back to its base form in its most stable form. Worms are an amazing animal. Um, they have no, they have no, they have a gizzard. They have no teeth, right? So that's why we need to put the grit in there, like calcium carbonate, fine calcium carbonate, and, and zeolite powder and stuff like that. Um, which again, the zeolite powder helps with CEC as well cation exchange capacity as well. Zeolite is, is one very common ingredient that I use in my potting mixes. Um, and it's it's just, it's so mild. You can plant stuff directly in 100% worm castings. In fact, a lot of, um, a lot of uh, production nurseries actually use worm castings as either a portion or entirely as their seed raising and, um, and cutting propagation media. I might because, be, I, I, I might, I might be a little, a little bit um, ignorant here, but so I'm thinking of the worm farms that I've seen, and you've got the soil mass, and then you're adding the compost or uh, whole food source on top, and you're recommending composting it. But um, what is a worm casting? What is it physically? It's worm turd. <laughs> So they, so they're, so they're, they're, they're eating organic matter and they're pooping out. And can you tell the difference of what a worm casting is from the soil itself? Yeah. <clears throat> and there's different stages of worm casting, but the completely broken down worm casting is like a cylindric, a small cylindrical pellet. But to get to that point, it's a very, very, very broken down. Um, uh, portion of soil and probably within the worm farm is a very is only at a percentage of what you would sift out so the worm farms that we have um you know they're stackable they've got multiple trays in them as you fill one up you put the next one on top and start feeding that and the worms start to move up um, after they've digested all of the stuff in the bottom trays yeah commercial worm farms uh, they just feed constantly on top and they have like a conveyor system with a scraper that goes along the bottom and scrapes off the most digested stuff that falls out. They then screen that. Yeah. Um, look, harvesting a domestic worm farm, like a household worm farm is a pain in the ass, but it's well worth it. Yeah. Um, 
if you were to go into large production of worm casting yourself and actually do it on site, which is, you know, you can have it in your greenhouse and, as I said, you know, produce something that's using locally available ingredients that's, you know, producing a microbial herd that is, um, you know, uh, developed and, and acclimatised to your environment. So after sifting, um, you can then use whatever portions of those worm castings that you like. Now, those larger particles that I sent you the picture of, mm -hmm. I would say that they have a, a relatively low amount of worm castings in them, but because of the microbial action and the passing through at least to a degree from the worms, they are still incredibly stable soil particles. So do you need to go to the extent of sifting them right out? Probably not. Will you get a better result out of them? Maybe. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't noticed that. I, I mean, as a soil amendment for me to use in my vegetable gardens and on my lawn and stuff like that, um, I, would, I wouldn't sift it. I'd just throw it directly on it. But if you were looking for something that is going to be incredibly stable and not exactly clog up your pots, I'd probably sift it to a higher degree and get those much more stable worm casting particles yeah. to, to apply. You can then feed the, the stuff that you sift out that isn't ideal back into the worm farm or back into the compost heap. And when you're sifting, I mean, you're going to be sifting and pulling the worms out of the farm, right? I mean, like they're in there, it's an Correct. integrated system. You're going to have soil or non, um, non pelletized forms kind of pouring through that have yet to reach that stage of digestion and you're just putting it all back. Does that harm the worms? Do you have to be careful in how often you do that? Oh, look, they're, they're delicate um, to a certain degree. Uh, generally speaking, you sift it through a larger, and, and our soil screens are perfect for this. They're, they're the perfect size, right? They're, they're the size that we need um, to sift this stuff out. And, and when you get to that finer particle, the friability and just the feel of it in your hands, it just, Makes you, makes you weak at the knees. It's, <laughs> you know, it's just black gold. It's awesome. Um, so it's not going to hurt them. I mean, if you overhandle them and you're rough with them, yes. Um, the thing is, is that you're harvesting the bottom tray, which is arguably the oldest worm castings. That's also going to be the wettest worm castings if in, in a domestic worm farm, if you have too much moisture in it. Um, and that's where that bottom tray where you've got the tap, you can drain off your moisture and stuff like that. You can drain off the leachate, they call, which is worm wee, essentially. Again, that's also a fantastic fertiliser um, if it's harvested enough and it's aerated and kept oxygenated. Um, the, the thing is that you're not going to have a lot of worms in that bottom tray because they've predominantly moved up into where the where the fresh food source is. Yeah, so you're sense. not getting a lot of worms in there. You will still have worms, but you won't have anywhere near the population you will have in an active worm tray, which where you have a lot of the a lot of the food source that you're adding new to the to the worm farm as you're constantly feeding. Now in a commercial worm farm, which are con which are you know called flow through worm farms, you just feed the top and harvest the bottom. There is no water collection tray. There are, you know you've got about a 60 centimeter bed depth. So by the time you get to the bottom, they're relatively dry. Um, there's commercially available worm castings that you can buy too that, you know, 
I'm guessing after this conversation, you're probably going to go online and buy just to have a bit of a try of them and see how they go. Um, you know, it's the, yeah, you're not, you're not going to have a lot of worms um, in the bottom of them, but there is, there is, you know, the, the requirement to, to sift them out and harvest them, which, you know, the, I, I believe the benefits outweigh the labor. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, for sure. I, uh, I actually, you know, I'll probably give it a try, but I've had a, I've had a friend who's been, um, who's had his worm farm going for like seven, eight years now. And he's always, uh, he does bonsai and he's always been like, man, this is, this is the stuff. And I've, and I've lost contact with him, but I've just been thinking hot dog. Tony was really onto something this whole time. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, his, his trees seem to really respond when he was investing the effort in the worms and really working with the worm tea and stuff like his trees really did respond to it, um, quite well. And I'm just thinking about, you know, ultimately what all of this comes down to. And it's interesting that you said, hey, listen, you, you, don't, you don't just inoculate with something and then all of a sudden all your microbial activity is taken care of. Like, this is work. It's work to take care of, a, of an ecosystem in your aquaculture or in bonsai cultivation in this confined environment where there is mutation and there is the, the rise and fall of bacteria and fungal populations based on inclement conditions. And, and I'm just recognizing now how alive um, you know, because it's not like I was ignorant to it, but I think I'm recognizing how much more each time you talk about it, you get a little bit more understanding and you get a little bit more daunted by, uh, the in inability to, um, have an easy solution. Right. And if you're going to go for a good compost and you're going to go for good worm castings, you're going to have to work at it. But there, if you're going to put in the time with bonsai already, why wouldn't you do that is I guess where I would ultimately come to. I remember a conversation that I had with my grandfather maybe a year or two before he died. Um, he was an avid gardener. I mean, he had a half-acre vegetable garden. He used to, you know, he grew that many vegetables that he'd just set tables up out the front of his house and put veggies on it and say, free, please take them. My you know, gosh. He had vegetables. He used to grow ox heart tomatoes the size of softballs. Have you ever eaten an ox heart tomato? No. It'll change your life. <laughs> and it were some of the best tomatoes that I've ever tasted. This is where I, my gardening prowess and, and, and my gardening enthusiasm from was from him. And I was explaining to him about where, how I was doing, you know, worm farming and stuff. And he'd never really done it. He, you know, this is the guy that had chooks and he'd go and get barrel loads of chook manure and he'd just stand there with his back to the garden and get a shovel full and just fling it over his shoulder, you know, into, into the garden as fertilizer. Um, and I was explaining it to him and he said, you know, I've never done it, but just like everything I do in the garden, um, you don't get anything good out of anything that you're putting onto your garden if, without hard work. Yep. Yep. It's, so it's a fact. You're not, you're not going to, you can't just plant a tree or plant a plant in the ground and expect it to respond without putting the work into making the soil the best it can be. And his soil was black, yeah. like 30 or 40 years of application of cow manure and straw and chicken manure and digging back in, you know, green compost and stuff like that, like chop and drop stuff. Um, you know, it's, so it's 
it's not, um, I mean, you could buy a commercially available product, um, just like you're buying hydrolysate or hydrosalates or, um, or kelp or anything like that, which are you foliar feeding those or soil drenching or both? I, I, I've been doing both. I mean, we've been experimenting with it. What do you think about that? Foliar feeding is by far more efficient through the uptake of the stomata, um, but that also depends on how much you want to wet the foliage of the tree. Um, you know, we, with with compact growth like that, we don't want to, you know, have any adverse conditions with mildew or, sure. or any disease and stuff like that. But worm castings have the have the brilliant ability to to combat disease as well. So you know, as a full system, it, it might be acceptable. Um, soil drenching as well will not only feed the micros, but obviously you can have uptake in the roots yeah. as well. Uh, to harbour the fungi that you would arguably try and target um, to, a, to a greater extent in a worm casting that you engineer yourself, um, we also probably need to think about um, a potting medium that is going to support the growth of mycorrhizae and hyphae sure. um, from fungi in the soil um now you know leong from bonsai south right i do in Australia. yeah yeah one of the most underrated bonsai artists i believe probably in the southern hemisphere i agree He's, he stuff um i've seen some of the some of the pots that he's taken out and repotted of some of his pines that he uses pine bark in and this these these pots are like white it almost looks like he's painted the outside of the root ball white it's got that much mycorrhizal fungi in it from the application of pine bark mini nuggets at very low concentrations mm -hmm. they are slow to break down i would argue probably slower than akadama in most cases um definitely slower than you would than you would find in a normal repotting um schedule that you would have for any of your trees even over a three to five year period and that not only adds organic substrate for the attachment of bacteria it drains really well and it adds a a, a lignin and a, and a and a food source a cellulose food source for that um beneficial fungi to actually eat on and attach to interesting now, okay I mean, the other thing is, is, is that, you know, I've seen your um, Mariah Live, the BSOP series on soil that you did, which absolutely, absolutely captivated me. And I've actually been talking to a guy named Don Petit, or Petit from um, the Bonsai Society of Oregon. Um, and um, he has a, a website called um, Hunting Oregon Akadama. Have you seen that? No, no, but uh, but I, that's really <laughs> it's really funny that you say that. I'm gonna write I'm gonna write this down right now because uh, Dude, I've been talking to this guy and I'm just like, man, Ed, this is gonna blow your mind, right? I've been talking to this guy. So I've got a rhyolite quarry out here, what they call white scoria. It's not actually scoria because it's not a, a vascular basalt. You know, it's it's rhyolite. It's basalt, but it's not vascular like like our red lava is or, or scoria um but you know talking to him with these different alophane levels and different levels of pumice and stuff like that and, and broken down pumice and stuff um that we get from akadama and kunama and stuff like this guy's you know put in some work and i'm talking to him and he sent me a couple of emails and and my four-month-old daughter's just 
got in the way in a very good way, but you know, I just haven't been able to get back to him. I received an email from him yesterday and I'm just like, Oh, he's your, Oh, I haven't heard from you. Have you been out to the quarry? By the way, I've been listening to Ryan Neal's podcasts on soil science and now I'm going to start experimenting with some compost tea and some worm castings and stuff. I'm just wondering if you've had any experience with it. And I'm going, <laughs> back and I said, sorry, Don, haven't got back to you. Haven't been out there. Yes, I have experience with it. All I can say is look out for the next episode of the podcast for a bit more info. There it is. <laughs> What a small, small, small world. I'm looking at I'm looking at his website right now. It is ARCGIS.com hunting Oregon Akadama. So yeah, which brings me to my next point. You know, when when coming back to, to the Beast Off series and your soil series on there. And, you know, Akadama, 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 you know, you were essentially, your education was based on that as being one of the core components of soil. It's been used in Japan. It creates highly ramified roots because it breaks down and it fractures and, and you get that, that fine, that development of fine roots. When we come down to it, is that the only way we can develop a fine root mass? No. Um, can we not use that and use something else like plagonite, like a higher portion of pumice, like scoria, and, and all scoria is not created equal. Um, you know, you, that's, that's another subject altogether. Um, is the application of worm castings, I, I know for a fact that the application of worm castings will produce a highly ramified root system. And I've never in my life used Akadama, ever. Um, with all this talk and, and all this research that we've been doing uh, and you've been doing with your, with your soil science podcasts and stuff like that and all the trials that you've been doing, um, is it possible that we've just, we've had not, for lack of a better description, Akadama as the, the perfect soil medium kind of force fed to us maybe mm. uh, because that was what was available, highly available in Japan. It's what they always use. And it just happened to create a highly ramified root system. Um, have we been just not thinking outside the box here? Do we even need it if we provide the rest of the components that result in a highly ramified root system? I here here's what I think. Um, when I first started working on this uh, long ago, almost immediately after coming back from Japan, it's like okay, you know, importation of akadama into North America was and still is challenging. Was more challenging then than it is now, based on sort of uh, packaging improvements that that you know akadama's fired and all that stuff. Uh, which whether it is or not, good akadama's not fired. Let's just be clear about that. But um, you know, the the writing was on the wall that we need to find another resource, and so I started looking. Looking, you know, and starting at the basic sort of soil science lab level. And I ended up talking with um, or communicating, corresponding via email with the, a gentleman who started Fox Farms, which is an organic uh, fertilizer company in Northern California. And his point was, listen, nature never made only one way. And, and that's continued to echo in my head because, you know, I think Akadama is unique um, 
Ian and and uh, and the analysis that the soil labs did on Akinama said, yeah, it's a unicorn. You know, he's come out and said it's a unicorn. It's a unique soil particle that exists at, because of the random accumulation of of things in that volcanic region um, that existed. It doesn't mean it's the only way to create a refinable, highly ramified root system. And I would agree with you there. Are we force fed it? I think it just opened the door to being aware that that's possible and that that is a component because, you know, think about this, a, a, a bonsai culture has to go through stages of learning. You first learn that the tree is important and then you try to be able to create a, a good tree. And then once you can create a good tree, you all of a sudden look at the ceramic and you say, well, that looks kind of poor for this effort I've put into the tree. And you, and, and you start to appreciate ceramics. And then all of a sudden you need to show this and you start looking at, you set it on a bench and you say, well, that doesn't look very nice. And then you start to recognize that stand makers and display methodologies really enhance the visibility of your tree. Well, you can take that same physiological approach to I'm going to worry about the branch, the trunk, right? Big, thick trunk. I want a big trunk and then branches and then taper and then ramification. And then once we've got the tree, you start looking at, well, what does this root system look like and how do I give it the kind of, and you know, it's such a backwards process or say it's such a complex system that it takes time to get to the root system but i think the focus now inside of bonsai is more on the root system and how we get because we are swimming against the stream and the force of the current in a bonsai container against the force of gravity because we're nullifying its application which is a common horticultural aspect that we are not engaging with and we have to use this crazy medium, which creates all of these dynamics inside of differing and lowering water qualities. Like the world's not getting better water. The water is getting worse, right? And so when we start to look at all of these conditions, how do we cultivate that fine root system and get that best bonsai with the resources we have? And I think Akadama opened our eyes to one way that you create or have a soil that gives right. But I think what you're talking about and what Ian was talking about is, hey, there are other ways. And I think this is valuable discussion. I think it's very valuable. Yeah. And, and look, if uh, price, uh, price is obviously the main driver for Akadama um, and, and its use and, and its potential to not use it if you could, uh, or availability is the other thing as well. I, I think that most of the time, if you ask any bonsai practitioner, whether at my level, and I'm, you know, very much a novice, um, or, or people such as yourself who, who have made a, a, a successful career out of it, would be if you could use, if you didn't have to use Akadama, but it was still available, would you still use it? And I think probably, you know, at least 50% of the time, people would probably say, if I didn't have to use it, if there was something else that I could do, which would produce the same results, hell yeah, I'd do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I would love to decouple from any dependency on some limited resource from some, you know, uh, distant region and really be able to, uh, you know, use more locally available resources. Like I'm, I'm all for this. This was a mission at Mirai from the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, is, is to, is to decouple and become self-sufficient and self-sustaining. Yeah. And, um, you know, we've got, as you said, we've got, you know, more than one way to, to do something. It's just developing the, the knowledge to unlock that, that the ability to do that. Yep. And I think, I, I think that 
horticulture and the care of the tree is we've relied on commercially available solutions for it for a long time without actually taking the time to really dig in and learn about every nuance of 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 the organism of the tree um you know for a lot of people um it's like you were saying that you know you develop the top half of the tree and then later on you think well what's going on below the soil like i tell my uh, my son you know when he's playing football i'm just like mate they can't run without legs so you know <laughs> take them out and that's exactly the same for a tree you know if they have got a healthy root system they're not going to run they might walk or they might just go yeah nah. <laughs> yep <laughs> you know um, and, uh, and, and the bulkier you make those legs and the healthier you make those legs, the, the, the better the tree is going to perform. Um, and, uh, I, I think that not only is soil particles and soil ingredients very important, but also the nutrition. And if you can couple those together with something like worm castings or some other solution, um, it, it really starts to open doors. I, as I said, I never had Arkadama available. I had um, sporadic availability of diatomite, which is a dynamite soil particle. Um, pumice, zeolite, especially, we have some of the best zeolite in the world here in Australia. Um, and so what I did was I got all of my different soil particles that I had readily available and made up a spreadsheet and worked out uh, the weight and volume of the particle and then put them in a, a predetermined volume of water to work out not only the water absorption capacity, but also the ethyl porosity and everything like that. I chucked it all into a spreadsheet. So I can go, I've got these things available. This uh, this um, offers CEC and a certain amount of water holding capacity and a certain amount of drainage. This adds a certain amount of, of airfield porosity and things like that. And I can just punch in different volumes of it to, to come up with my ideal um, amount of airfield porosity, water holding capacity, and so forth. Um, so, you know, our optimum moisture content would be, you know, somewhere between 30 and 40%. Um, optimum um, air content or airfield porosity between 20 and 40%, or arguably higher. Um, and then everything after that is pretty much academic um, to a certain extent. To, to you know to a, to, a, to a very small degree and that sort of allowed me to engineer a potting mix depending on what ingredients i had yep um i don't think that 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 people take as much of a dive into it like i did um i just have a very analytical approach to things that i look at um which is just a more nuanced way of saying I'm a big old nerd. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you also have the know, you also have the know-how, you know, and I think this is like this is if everybody in order to do bonsai had to develop the knowledge that you have, then bonsai would be practiced by 10 people. You know, like it, you and this is what's so beautiful about the current I think the current trend in in the world of bonsai is there are people like yourself or Ian engage you know Ian offering information and you know it's hard to know because he doesn't do bonsai and this is really where you know to find a ceramicist that doesn't do bonsai that can make a great bonsai pot is very challenging but when you find a bonsai person that has a knowledge of ceramics that decides they're going to make a good bonsai pot now you have function and I think this is where 
you know, this conversation with you by your email, I was so excited because I was like, oh, okay, this this is somebody who is practicing bonsai, but can also, you know, speak the language and really make this understandable, which I think was a complex aspect of the previous soil experiment. But I also think you understand the limitations and some of those things. And you being knowledgeable about this, there's a place in the bonsai world for your knowledge that is incredibly valuable. And it allows the rest of us to have insight into where we can evolve and continue to dig deeper to find further solutions because we are just at the beginning of this process. Exactly. And and I, I listened to your um, Bonsai Out of Kimura um, series. Um, I just finished it this morning, actually, on my morning walk. Oh, nice. Um, to- Taking my son to school. Yeah, that, that's my thing. I walk him to school. He rides his scooter and then I walk downtown to get a coffee and then I walk home. I get him my 10,000 steps a day and I get it about an hour of my podcast. And yeah, it's, it's good. Nice. Uh, so um, you've been instrumental in me getting fitter. So feel good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, so, any way we can um, go about it, you know? <laughs> Bonsai Mirai helping, uh, helping fitness around. Um, <laughs> So uh, what was I going to say? So um, in that you said uh, it it would be not only um, incredibly naive, but but also disrespectful to not try and achieve a higher level than I've been shown. Um, You know, saying that um, Mr. Kimura practiced bonsai and still practices bonsai at such a high level and such a, um in, in such a uh, an innovative way and taught you it's it's almost your duty to elevate it or attempt to elevate it again and chase that next echelon of perfection Absolutely. essentially or chase one of, of quality um and that's kind of where where i come from as well um it's our it's always been my ethos that um a well-educated uh, a well-educated person is is uh is going to appreciate things more um i i try as much as i can to bring that across and bring my knowledge across on a on, on forums like oz bonsai or um i see that um bjorn has has started a forum um as well that's they're still in its infancy but he has a lot of good guys on there i haven't been on there in a while um i went on another forum which will remain nameless but oh my god did he leave bad taste in my mouth um so um yeah but um you you know you you try and get this information out there but without having an appropriate platform and people that can listen to information like you delivering your podcast and on mariah live and on your on your forum on your website um you know, it, it, it kind of just disappears. Yeah. Um, it, it's, and, and, and I've got to commend you on, well, you know, for starters, your, your success in, in, your, in your chosen career in Bonsai, but also in what you've built in Mariah Live and, and, uh, and the American, um, you know, Bonsai uh, approach. It's, 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 I, I think it's been instrumental in fueling exactly this sort of stuff. Cool. Uh, I appreciate that. A to, yeah, giving people a platform to actually access this information. Yeah. And being so f- offering up that knowledge, um, you know, it's and and being able to to offer it up really gives me a kick. Thing that people, you know, actually want to hear this info. They actually want to learn. 
Oh, I think they're I think they're going to be wildly excited by this conversation because it's digestible, and I think, you know, it everybody's motivation is different, but but uh, the 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 guiding light of Mariah has always been the fact that I I I spent a lot of time working really hard to learn, uh, you, you know, very little compared to the effort and going to Japan, you know, putting in that time. Uh, and having the capacity to be able to share that information and then recognizing that we have not, you know, coming back from Japan, it's like, well, Australia, South Africa, uh, Europe, the United States, we have more that we can achieve and to not to leave to leave the potential out there, to leave the potential unrealized is, is, is to be, is just to be lazy in my mind, you know, like, and that's where technology has created the ability. I mean, we're, you're in Australia, I'm sitting in my, on, you know, in my office in, in the Pacific Northwest of North America and, and we, <laughs> we're 17 hours apart, yeah. 17 hours difference, you know, it's, and we had to, yeah. and then we get to have these conversations and, 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 um, and I just really appreciate that you're willing to share, you know, because you could say I've done all of this work and I and I know all of this stuff and and everybody can work as as hard as I did to accumulate this information. Like the, there is a point and there is a stance where that that thought process exists. I don't think it's the most fruitful thought process, but I I, I if you if that were the way you felt, I couldn't knock you or judge you for feeling that way. But but that's not how you feel. And if if we can utilize our platform to have this conversation, why would we not? You know. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, it's, I get a real kick out of um, educating people um, and, and, and teaching people what I know, um, you know, to, like I do, I do regular live streams on a, um, on a, on a Facebook group here in Australia for the, um, uh, it's called the future of the Australian aquatic industry. Uh-huh. Uh, and I do, different series on mechanical and biological filtration and probiotic bacteria and all this, all the, a, a huge plethora of different, um, different subjects. Um, just because it's uh, the theme of that group is we get nowhere unless we work together yeah. and not everyone knows everything. I, I don't, I don't profess to know everything. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite willing to say, I don't know that, but please teach me, you know? Um, and and it would be as it would be ignorant to think that anyone is going to that I know what I know because people were willing to share information with me and make that resource available so that I could get to where I am. It would be incredibly ignorant of me to think, you know, I've I've had this knowledge available to me. I've been able to build on that knowledge. Um, why why would I not share it? Yeah, and that's. I, I, I think with with an overall over encompassing ethos like that of of people listening to these podcasts and and putting in information for the benefit of you know the community is 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 a wonderful. Thing. I agree. Um, the value can't be understated. No, no, and and I mean it's it just goes to show like where we're at now, where you throw out the no- notion, you know, what if. Uh, you know, we're force fed Akadama, which I would agree, um, because we haven't really had anything or known of anything. Probably else. not the best term, but the, oh, the only one I could think. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 I think, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's wrong. I don't think that you're wrong, you know. But it's like, well, how do you find a solution outside of Akadama? You got to dig, and you got to work. You know, dig for lack of, for lack of a, that was not intentional, but uh, 
but it worked <laughs> that was out. A great dad yeah, that was <laughs> that was a total dad moment. But I mean, you do you have to work and collaborate, and these kinds of conversations give rise to the ideas where and the and these things start to build and they start to grow themselves and become, uh, you know, new scopes of knowledge that we can play with and stuff. And and uh, I just really appreciate your willingness to share. Because uh, it means a lot, and this is obviously a subject that I'm extremely interested in because I, I have made significant commitments and gone very deep on what I'm willing to do yeah. to explore this. You know, I mean, we did it to the whole garden, and we've been working through it, and we've come to a greater amount of knowledge. And that that not not many people probably would have rolled the dice and been like, okay, let's do this thing that is unknown to a garden of this caliber of trees, and and see what happens. And you know, people could call it cavalier or, um, you, you know, uh, stupid would be another thing that you could call it. But you could also call it a willingness to create a test group that gave you just a uh, undeniable quantity of information. And I think that's where moving forward, continuing to use Mariah as an incubator for that information and to collaborate with people such as yourself mo- motivates me greatly. Well, I, I, I think that um you know firstly on you found some some negative effects in those old trees with older soil structures um mistakes are great teachers mm-hmm. yep i think teachers i think however that you're underselling yourself a lot um because you've you're, you're essentially taking the leap that no one else would do or no one else was prepared to um and i think probably a lot of that comes back from your teaching i mean uh, Mr. Kimura was was someone that 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 operated outside of the box and outside of the mold that he was told that he needed to operate in, and that's how he drove. That's how he drove his 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 caliber of work and 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 the and the change in in in, in bonsai design that he did. And and I think that you've done exactly the same thing and continue to do exactly the same thing. I think you, I think you're underselling yourself a lot. You've, you've, you've got balls, man. You know, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I think, I think, um, I think I have enough confidence at this point, not arrogance because bonsai will straighten you out if you're arrogant, but I have enough confidence to feel like we can do an experiment like that. And if it doesn't go correctly, that, um, that we still have, we still have the horticultural knowledge to pull out of it. And, and, and I feel, I feel good with where we're at right now. You know, like I really, because because there's an undeniable f- fact of applying that compost extract is that it did add a lot of life to the containers. And where we saw the most detrimental impact was the most, uh, I would say, established root systems. And that, again, like if we're going to go back and talk about the canopy of the tree, and now we're focusing more on the in-ground portion of the tree, to recognize that the same nutritional applications of knowledge or utilizations of these different systems doesn't necessarily broadly apply to a root system but that differing root systems are going to demand a different level of knowledge and understanding to responsibly handle them. Because look at Japan right now and Japanese bonsai and the way that that those trees are are treated is a relatively, I mean, different in different bonsai facilities would treat them differently. But there is a a homogenous approach to, say, nutrition or fertilization to a large degree in Japan. But all of the trees are refined, highly compressed root systems at this point in bone, in Japanese bonsai. And in Australia, where you're 
Now, working with native species that are freshly collected and in Europe and in other parts of the Western world, we're dealing with situations that Japan covered 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago and three generations of bonsai professionals back and trying to treat them the same way as Japanese bonsai is treating the fruits of all of that generational knowledge, some of which, or maybe even most of which, has been lost, much to your point about your grandfather and creating heirloom soils, right? Like, there were generations that understood this, and we are now, for the majority uh, of people, I think, are buying an off-the-shelf product to try and satisfy our needs and losing that knowledge, but also losing some of that quality. Well, you can see Bonsai having followed that process, but now as it evolves, we're being tasked with working out the systems to create the kind of perfection that Japanese Bonsai had grown and matured to be able to create. And that means we got to yeah. dig back into old knowledge again. And, and, you know, people are thinking, like you said, an off the shelf solution. They're thinking, I can make my roots really healthy by using Akadama. That is one part of the Japanese approach to horticulture. Absolutely. It's not, it's not the silver bullet. Just like worm castings isn't the silver bullet for everything. It's it's part of a system. Yep. And you could potentially use. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, the, the, I mean... Worms are used in self-composting toilets now. They will take a high a high level of E. coli and essentially turn that into turn human waste into something that you can plant vegetables in yeah. and eat. Yeah. They, they, they have the ability to transform things in a beautiful, magical way. Um, and it's it's like I mean I could say yeah worm castings are going to fix all your problems go and buy some off the shelf worm castings no don't go and do that understand what they're doing understand what you're doing with your potting medium understand what you're actually trying to achieve out of a potting medium you know you could if if something like crushed brick gave you all of the water holding capacity the the airfield porosity and the CEC and the nutrients, you'd grow all your trees in crushed brick. Yeah. It doesn't, it offers some of those things. Is it the most ideal thing to use? No. Could you use it? Yes. Can you use it by itself? God, no. Don't do that. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Understand what it is that you're trying to achieve before you just jump in and go, yeah, this will solve my problems without actually knowing what problem it is that you're trying to solve. Yeah. What, what and this you know this is this is the pursuit of of the art form but the, the pursuit of the knowledge that allows you to excel at the art form as well absolutely it's, it's not yeah this is what makes bonsai i mean this is what makes bonsai special it's what makes bonsai special you 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 have to be able to address the physiology or else you don't get to play you know, and I think yeah. like um i I think that's a strong point that you make where where worm castings aren't going to be you know, the, the end all be all solution, just like the compost extract wasn't just like it's, it, it is part of the holistic system. But I do think, I think it's very, very interesting. And, and as we learn more about 
what different root systems need and what different trees and different shapes of containers need and what different trees and different root systems and different shapes of containers need with different water. You know, it's just like it does become so complex that at some point it becomes daunting. But ultimately, if you're going to pursue bonsai or any, if you're going to pursue aquaculture or anything like this that demands you really dig in, and I think that bonsai is an art form that will never be um, broadly applicable to uh, society in general because it demands a specific type of person that is willing to go ahead and put in the work or, or you know, to stick with it and have success, put in the work and put in the time and be willing to fail and learn and come back and take your licks and keep on ticking like that. That is a big part of bonsai. But um, but these conversations do make it more attainable and they do make it a little bit clearer and they enhance the knowledge. And in that, I, I very much thank you, Gareth, because it's been awesome. No, that's it's you know, it's and this is all coming back to, you know, helping everyone to understand better. Um, you know, it's not, it's not, you can't just go up to someone and say, get good. And until you get good, don't bother coming and talking to me. And I, I, I had people essentially give me that vibe without saying it. And so I said, okay, all right, I'll, I'll get good. And I did get good. And now those people come to me yeah. to help. Yeah. And willingly give it and and they then they you know it's it's not you don't say i told you so you don't you know throw it back in their face you don't um it, the, the most important thing that it is 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 you just you know you you don't get anywhere without helping each other yeah it's, and it, it's this as i've said this platform just allows you to, to has allowed a lot of people i think the access to this knowledge it's fantastic so, Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I'm sure we could probably make this a multi-part series as we go along. It, 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 things like this reinvigorate my interest a lot too. So, Well, I was going to say, you know, like uh, I have, I have more questions and I have more that I want to talk to you about, but I have learned over the course of doing this that I would like to sit and think about it. I would like to try some things. I would like to, you know, like letting it digest. This is a great, beautiful first big conversation um there will be specifics and if you're willing i'm sure we 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 could and and probably should do follow-up conversations you you have my email um and yeah skype whatsapp zoom whatever it is yeah by all means sounds great sounds great hey gareth thank you for taking the time i'm gonna let you get back to your kid i'm gonna get back to my kid as well i gotta take him skateboarding before he goes crazy but um uh, i very much appreciate it and let's stay in touch how are you? Stay safe, Ryan. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye.